Welcome to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. This week, we're going to be talking about third parties, and specifically the Libertarian National Convention. We're going to be asking ourselves if we're all committing collective suicide. And as always, we're going to have happy news and troop deployments. Uh, we're going to start out, as always, with feedback from our last episode. Uh, I have a quick comment that uh, last episode I said that it was Wisconsin that had all the wonky, weird, restrictive lockdowns, and uh, it's not Wisconsin, it was Michigan. Uh, so sorry, Wisconsin, for besmirching your reputation, but your uh, state legislature is a bunch of monsters, so I don't feel too bad about it. Eniash, you had some feedback for us. Yeah, this came from the subreddit. Uh, not with that incident. said that it'd be cool to have a meta discussion about how to react to the news rationally, which I don't think that is nearly mind-killy enough <laughs> if we're uh, <laughs> reacting to the news, but I suppose we could try to do that. I think, for me, a lot of times the most rational reaction to the news is like, oh, God, why is this happening? Well, I think for me, a lot of the most rational reaction to the news, um, you know, especially if it's just the daily headlines, is to ignore it. Yeah. Uh, because there is a lot of pressure on news organizations to publish a lot of content, and most of it is stuff that is not that interesting or important to know about. I agree with that take, and that is why my troop deployments tend to be, like, just random cool stuff that's going on in my life. I will say that the way I usually react to news right now is if I see a headline, I will I will never just read the headline and, uh, and share that, even though I used to do that thing, because more than once I have been burned. Like, I, if it is interesting enough that it is something I want to comment on or share, I will dig down and read the entire article because the vast majority of the time the headlines are made to be the most clickbaity, outrage-inducing things ever. I saw a number of headlines about, like, state capital is stormed by armed protesters, and it turns out it was not at all stormed. They were allowed to walk in just like every other member of the public, and that state has open carry laws, so there was no storming. There was just people, you know, observing as they are allowed to do. And uh, just just in general, it's... It was, it's a, it was a light rain of protesters. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's either um, read the whole thing or ignore it completely. And the other rational reaction I generally tend to have to news is... Uh, I remember all the other news articles I've seen that are basically flat-out lies. And I'm like, why why would I trust this one to be any different? Like, I know someone who was recently interviewed about uh, their industry, which there's expectations that there's going to be shortages in this industry. And they said, I think, no, I think we're fine. All our supply chains are pretty tight. Uh, we're going to be okay here. And the reporter said, well, we can't use that. And uh, a week later, the story came out, completely didn't have that person in the article anywhere, but did quote all the people that were like, oh, my God, the sky is falling and we're all going to die. So, well, yeah. I mean... I mean, honestly, that's better than what I thought you were going to do with that, which was them talking about, in the middle of a paragraph, about how, like, supply chains are being uh, restricted, having an out-of-context quote where it says, this expert said that supply chains are tight. Because, um, <laughs> like, my, uh, my granddad is 
a retired epidemiologist, and he actually, like, for most of his career, had a policy to never talk to the news, because he he was interviewed about something or other, I can't remember exactly what, and he got quote-mined, and, um, like, got in trouble with his employer and everything, because, like, a newspaper took his, uh, took something he said out of context and spun it in a really not-true direction in, like, the 60s. Yeah. So this is not a new thing. It's always been bad. The media must be purged. Think that's, that's your answer to everything. Yes. He's a very uh, flamer-happy I mean, I mean, guy. So, I mean, someone must be purged is the answer to pretty much everything. <laughs> but, you know. He's got a problem. Just purge it. Yeah. The real problem was that they were interviewing the guy from the pitch meeting, and he was saying, "Ah, our supply chains are tight. It'll be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> My favorite piece of feedback from the Reddit was from uh, Risky Biznoom, who said the whole show had an intellectual dark web vibe. Nice. So, congratulations, guys. I think we've made it. Uh, we haven't made it yet. This has got to spread further. Once we have, like, a dark picture of us in a field somewhere, then we make <laughs> yes. it. And uh, you had one other piece of feedback to share. Oscar, Oscarnip? I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Oscarnip? Oscar NP, I think. Oscar NP, okay. says, regarding schools being uh, just play spaces, it's probably important to set up some system that introduces the kids to new things so they can learn what interests them. And that was from the Discord. Yeah, and that was, I think, a feedback to my comment about how schools are bad and we shouldn't have them. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, I think what you don't want is a system that forces kids to learn new things because that's how they learn to hate them. Um, I think it is important if you have... Uh, this collective, uh, you know, if we switch over to a more daycare model than a we're going to educate you model, uh, then yes, the best practice would be to have creative things around um, that kids could pick up if they were interested in and have people around who know how to use those things so kids can go ask questions and actually learn skills um, if they are motivated enough to do so. Ooh, I bet we could get the next generation to hate video games and actually make their lives productive by forcing them to play video games. Not yeah, that I have anything out. against video games, but you know. <laughs> totally we could do that. I just want to say real quick, um, previously I talked about the podcast Power Problems put out by the Cato Institute, and they, uh, for their most recent episode as of the recording of this, which may be the second most recent episode as of its release, I'm not sure, um, they had an expert on uh, civilian-military relations on, and one of the things she discussed in quite a lot of detail was the incident with the USS Roosevelt. Uh, that's the ship whose captain uh, sent out the memo um, about sailors with covid and the ship needing to be docked and probably leaked it to the press and just like talking more broadly about uh what what happened there um what uh went on between him and the secretary of the navy and his sailors and his support and his superior officers uh and um 
Uh, yeah, it was a really interesting and nuanced and detailed discussion. And if uh, any of our amateur fumblings around those questions interested you, I'd recommend emphatically that you listen to that podcast and get a much more substantive take than we were able to offer. I listened to that after you linked it. It's only a half hour, goes faster on, you know, increased speed playback, and it was really super informative. All right, so we're going to go ahead into our news stories, and the first one we're going to be talking about this week, uh, because we want to make sure that everyone gets as mind-killed as possible, we're going to start with a political story that Justin Amash is running for president. And uh, David is going to tell us a little bit about the Libertarian National Convention. Yeah, so Justin Amash, uh, the uh, Republican-turned-independent congressman, I believe, um, has uh, announced that he will be running for president on the Libertarian ticket, and this was, shall we be generous and say, a controversial move amongst the uh, people who follow Libertarian Party politics. Uh, Both of them, actually, uh, were quite (laughs) up in arms about this. Um, So, uh, yeah, Justin Justin Amash is a pretty cool guy, a good principled Libertarian on most questions. Uh, He is uh, pro-life, which is not ideal, but aside from that, he's like by a substantial margin this sanest person who will be at the top of a presidential ticket in 2020 um he's not going to win because the way we do elections in america is terrible um but yeah it's nice that he's running even if it won't actually do anything um yeah, and I heard a lot of chatter about this from liberals worrying that he was going to siphon votes away from Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't see – I think anyone that – any anyone any liberals that, that were going to vote for Joe Biden and then switched over their votes to Justin Amash, the, I don't think those people were ever going to vote for Biden. I don't see no, – nobody knows anything about Justin Amash other than that he voted to impeach Trump. Um, that's the kind of the one thing he's known for. So I don't think he's going to be really motivating people to flock away from the Democratic ticket. Um, He may inspire some people to abandon the Republican ticket since uh, they tend to absorb the Libertarian vote and their uh, standard bearers, shall we say, not very Libertarian. Uh, But ultimately, I just think it's going to have very little impact on much of anything. Yeah, I I will say um, I think the – people worried about him playing spoiler um for trump against biden uh they have something uh in that uh hashtag never trump republicans might vote for amash over biden but i think there are as many uh quote unquote hashtag never trump republicans who would have just held their noses and voted for trump and will vote for Amash instead, as would have held their noses and voted for Biden. So, yeah, I agree. I don't think he's going to really tip the election one way or the other. I will say that uh, I could, in theory, vote for him without breaking my oath, because he voted no on FOSTA-SESTA, 
which makes him in the drastically small minority there. Uh, I don't know if I could vote for anyone who's pro-life. The fact that he's a libertarian, I don't know if is enough to overcome that. But at the very least, it is not theoretically impossible for me to vote for him. So that is a big plus Uh, in my book. I believe, and I'm not certain about this, I believe his official position is that um, we need that pro-lifers which I should not describe as we because I am not pro-life. Um, <laughs> pro-lifers need to win a Hearts and Minds campaign before they can even think about changing laws. Um, so his his administration, if he, assuming he sticks to that line when he, if slash when uh, he actually like gets into a position of power, like he, I do not think he would pass any laws that would restrict well, abortion well it's the abortion debate personal belief it, the abortion debate at a at a national level isn't really about laws it's about judges um and you know I, I i don't know if there's reason to believe that justin amash wouldn't just get the the list from the federalist society and you know pick a name uh, out of a hat like most republican presidents do i mean is it even about judges at this point like we've had a fairly conservative supreme court since um uh bush 43 and as far as i know there hasn't been any serious run on getting roe v wade overturned well there's one pending right now um the 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 issue is that kennedy was the real defender and Mm. when he retired um since then, the court has taken a few abortion cases and is doing the thing that court watchers r- recognize as chipping away at the right without overturning it. They are they are taking great care not to ever um, reinforce the right to an abortion in their opinions. Um, they're narrowing the right. They're saying, well, in this circumstance, it doesn't apply. And then in this circumstance, it doesn't apply. And that's generally that's how the court leads up to overturning something. Um, so there is real cause to be worried that Roe v. Wade is not going to survive much longer. But there's also reason to think the damage is already done, and really the only hope is uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, but he, there's, there's a lot of reason to think he might be uh, in the majority to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Well, I have... Uh entered a metaculous position that I think I put like a 20% chance on Roe v. Wade being substantially overturned by 2028. So here's hoping I'm right on that one. That's <laughs> fucking terrifying that it's up to 20%. Uh, that That's me. And I put that up like, uh, I think after Trump had... Um, been elected but before he'd been sworn in so uh, I'd probably actually moved away from that by now I'd probably put it at more like uh, 10 to 15 which like is still higher than I want it to be but eh, it's not that bad I'd probably give it about a 30% chance to be overturned um, completely uh, but probably you know, over 50, maybe like a 60% chance of being effectively overturned. 
Um, in that states can pass whatever laws they want, and the Supreme Court will rubber stamp them while not officially overturning Roe v. Wade. That's kind of the situation already, except for the most extreme uh, um, laws, right? Like, I remember well, during the pandemic, uh, Texas basically shut down, or said they were basically shutting down abortion clinics before a few courts pushed them back and said that's one step too far. Yeah, yeah. so what the real test case, I don't know the name of the case, but in the previous court, they had a case where they required uh, one – and I don't remember which state it is – but they had a law that said abortion providers had to have admitting privileges at a hospital, and most of them don't. And it basically shut down all of the abortion clinics in the state except for like a handful of them. And the court said no. That's unconstitutional. You can't do that. It's a substantial burden on this right, and there's no real reason why they need to have these – Admitting privileges this is you know, pretty clear that this is just an attempt to restrict the right to an abortion. But there's an identical case that a different state had an identical law that is now working its way up to the court. So people are very concerned with, you know, how's the court going to rule on it this time? Because they've granted cert. Um, so it seems like they're going to be taking another look at it. Wait, the Supreme Court ruled before and now they're going to looking at it again? Correct. That is extremely unusual, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, I I assume that that was not this court, like. It, yeah, but it, they they have the whole what do they call it stare decisis thing where they'd like to not change decisions once they've been made. Yeah, it was the last court. It was pre Kavanaugh. Okay. But it was the same court, other, except for him, I think. It may have been it may have been before Gorsuch, but I think it was just before Kavanaugh. Well, uh, Inyash, you wanna give us a more or less meaningless point estimate? Of your percentage, so we can see who's the best calibrated co-host? No, I, I, I am not a lawyer. I do not spend a lot of time on this sort of thing. I just know that any 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 degradation of this right is a horrible thing, in my opinion, and I can't put numbers on it. But... Yeah. I, I, w I will say, I agree that, like... Uh, restricting people's access to abortions is a bad thing but also like the technology involved has come a long way since roe v wade was originally decided so even if like obviously i don't favor having a law on the books making it illegal but even if um uh abortion was re-illegalized it's not that clear to me that it would make abortions that much more dangerous or uncommon. That's a very good point. I think we should at some point, or maybe on Basing Conspiracy somewhere, have some sort of a public service announcement thing, because nowadays it is extremely easy to, at least in the first trimester, get a at-home abortion by ordering some drugs off India, or from India, or possibly even Canada, but the point is, it's very cheap, very easy. All you have to do is a little bit of Googling. And um, and so that makes me feel like much better about the fact that the law is circumventable quite easily. But still, I, I wish more people knew about this, that they don't have to go to you know a clinic or Planned Parenthood or anything. If they don't want a kid, they can just Google real fast and have this stuff shipped to them. Yeah. Uh, 
But nonetheless, I would still like it to be an enshrined uh, law. And you're right, I probably should put some numbers on my estimation so that when I see news stories about this, I know whether I have to, like, mobilize and go out into the streets or be like, oh, this is just more outrage porn. I don't have to worry right now because the, the chances of it happening are so low anyway. Yeah. Anyway, shall we move on? I think you were going to tell us about the Libertarian National Convention. Yeah, so I just wanted to say that uh, the Libertarian National Convention is really funny. Um, it, <laughs> it's probably not how they like to be seen. Yeah, uh, it's basically like half people who are trying to have an actual real grown-up political party, and then half uh, ideological purity slash um, college-style political discussion club who want to all sit in a circle and talk about how libertarian they are and debate who's the most libertarian. Uh, also, there are a lot of Hoppians in the Libertarian uh, National Convention, and that's not great. Uh, What's a Hoppian? It's basically an anarcho-capitalist who's also racist. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah, the... Um, the uh, Anarchy Ball blurb describing uh, Hoppy, uh, the Hoppa Ball is uh, being black violates the NAP, though, which is a little <laughs> bit of a caricature, but not much of one. Um, Do you know where the name comes from? Uh, yes, it's named after Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, ah. who is an economist. Who is white. Unquote, uh, I mean, yes, obviously. <laughs> he has about the most aggressively German name I've ever heard. Um, so, yeah, that's not a, not a big leap there. He is a pretty despicable person. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to watch something really, really funny, and you've already gone through all the episodes of Tiger King or whatever... Uh, tune into the Libertarian National Convention in a uh, few weeks, I think. Uh, yeah, they were... It was... They didn't cancel the in-person event until, like, distressingly recently. Uh, but I think they've rescheduled it to, for, like, an online convention uh, near the end of May. I'm honestly surprised they're not doing it in person. Yeah... Uh, so the way it works, which is pretty, depending on your perspective, either hilarious or rage-inducing, is they have the, uh, the selection committee, and they lock them in a room, and they don't let them out until they have a candidate, and the yeah. way they do it is everyone votes, if there's a majority then that's the candidate. If there's not a majority, then they kick out the uh, person with the least votes and then rerun the votes. Uh, Gary Johnson, who was the only remotely qualified member in 20... or um, candidate in 2016, uh, was elected on, I think, the third round, which goes to show you what kind of people you're dealing with there. Hey, at least they're using ranked choice voting. There have been conventions that have literally gone on for, like, two days. Uh, it's, it's so bad. 
here's so here's my frustration with the Libertarian Party and the Green Party and all the all 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 of the third parties, is that they always every four years they raise a bunch of money to run for president, and it's always doomed. There's no never any chance. Meanwhile, there's always a handful of congressional districts where either the Democrat or the Republican is running unopposed. And I feel like if a third party really wants to have some relevance, that's Ooh. where they should be targeting, where they could be run as the the not-Democrat or the not-Republican and mount an actual campaign and people might actually vote for them because there's no, there's no worry about being the spoiler. And I feel like if they have these resources, that's where they should be sinking them in and, and get some real institutional power and maybe you get enough representatives so that you can influence a vote or two. That's yeah. a damn good idea. Yeah, I'm not sure it's actually that good an idea, because, like, the the districts where there are people running unopposed are, like, Heartland Bible Belt for Republicans and, like, New York City for Democrats. Oh, they're unopposed because there's no chance. Yeah. Well, there's no chance of, of a somebody on the wrong side of wrong ideological side but in the heartland you could the libertarians should be running there and in new york city the green party should be running or you know also the libertarians just one of the ones that's more like us rather than the ones that are more the older generation that came from the republican side yeah. also true yeah i mean so the libertarian party actually has had uh a fair amount of success on local in local and state level elections so they are kind of doing that it's just that at the federal level their attention is mostly focused on the presidency which is maybe a little bit of a mistake but like i said the libertarian party is kind of a clown show anyway so like what do you expect you might know this offhand, so I don't have to Google it. Did Ross Perot run as a libertarian, or was he his just own party? No, he, he was just not. independent. He was an independent. Oh, okay. All right, well, speaking of clown shows... Uh, sorry, sorry. Um, are we skipping the uh, solving the electoral Nash equilibrium? Yeah, David I mean, has a way to solve electoral politics, man. I thought that was a joke, but go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so um, real quick, I just want to say there is an optimal solution uh for like actually doing electoral politics well so what you need to do is uh find the third party which cl most closely fits your beliefs um so it'll for listeners of this show it'll probably be either the libertarian party or the transhumanist party uh, wait there's a transhumanist party Yes, they started like huh. two years ago, and no one outside the Beltway has heard of them. Uh, but if you go to Caplicon, that's probably like the highest density gathering of transhumanist party uh, members outside of like official functions. Uh, so if you want to meet them, then that's where they are. Um, so uh, find that party, and then... If you live in a non-swing state, then vote for them. If you live in a swing state, uh, then find someone who lives in a non-swing state 
who uh, supports one of the main party candidates and do a vote swap with them, where they vote for your preferred candidate and you vote for theirs. Um, I imagine we might in the Discord do something like this closer to Election Day. Uh, also, Eliezer Yudkowsky did one on his Facebook in 2016, so you should be able to find one without much problem. Um, basically, the reason why is because a lot of ballot access and also a lot of media attention is apportioned based on popular votes, uh, whereas... Uh, in the national election, whereas uh, actual electoral outcomes are determined, of course, by the Electoral College. So if you do this, then um, you uh, will basically, basically this is how you optimize your political influence. If you're living in a swing state, then you don't need to, quote unquote, throw your vote away. Uh, you can vote for your most favored candidate who actually has a chance of winning um, while still supporting your uh, favorite third party. Uh, and if you don't live in a swing state, then you can just like support the third party without worrying. And of course, if your most preferred candidate is a member of a main party, then if you live in a swing state, vote for them. And if you live in a non-swing state, then uh, find someone to who supports a third-party candidate to swap votes with. And there are websites that are out there to facilitate this sort of thing. Um, it is legal to do. It is just not legal to provide proof. So you can't take a picture of your ballot. I can't take a picture of my own damn ballot and do what I want with it? No, because you live in America and freedom is a lie. God damn. It was actually a uh, – it's an old law that was passed to combat, um, you know, party bosses strong-arming people into voting for their preferred candidates. Um, you, they wanted people to be able to go in and vote for whoever they wanted and not have the uh, – not, not have the ability to go uh, bring evidence to the, the guy, the, the, the big cheese who would break their legs if uh, they voted wrong. I feel like that's solving the wrong problem. Why don't we, like, make breaking people's legs illegal? Well, we already do that. <laughs> Shit. So our next story is from Kevin Drum, who asks, Are we co committing collective suicide? Um, his answer is yes. Economist John Cochran says no. He has a blog post up that we will link in the show notes um, where he calls what we're doing a dumb reopening but has some reasons to believe that it might be a good idea. What, what does he mean by collective suicide here? Cause that, yeah. yeah, so what, what Kevin Drum's talking about is he's talking about how we're, we're basically opening up our economy without satisfying any of the criteria that we had set out for the, the opening. We have reached a peak total in uh, COVID-19 infections and deaths, um, but we have plateaued. Um, it's not there hasn't really been a sustained drop in the numbers. Um, every indication is that once we stop doing what we're doing, the numbers will just shoot back up again. There's no comprehensive testing re regime. There's no comprehensive contact tracing regime. So it's basically the same situation we were in in March. We've just spent a month and a half in quarantine for no reason. 
And John Cochran says this is not the case. Yeah, so John Cochran argues that a smart reopening would be best, where we had everything worked out, we had lots of testing, we have lots of contact tracing set up, and uh, we're, we're that's how we would be on top of it. Um, but for a, a lot of reasons, that's not really an option anymore. And I agree with this. People are not going to do this for much longer. You know, I always said... When we started this, by June, people are going to go about their business. They're not going to stay locked up all summer. So no matter what the government wants to do, I, I really don't think they're going to be able to keep people in all summer. All right. They had a six-week window to get their shit in order. Right. And the fact that they didn't get their shit in order um, doesn't change the fact that they, they can't keep doing this indefinitely. Um, now, what Cochran argues, though, is that what we're seeing around the world is a lot of different government policies um, regarding lockdowns. Some places are locking down very tight. Some places are not locking down at all. And we're seeing very similar behavior of the virus in every uh, place, regardless of the government policy. And what his... Uh, guess about this is is that really the thing that's making the most difference is just information people know that there's a virus and they are self-regulating their own behavior uh they're they're not doing high-risk activities they're wearing masks they're uh and they're not doing what he calls super spreading activities um which are you know, things like gathering in large groups and he says that there's reason to believe when you look at the actual behavior of the virus that just preventing those super spreading activities and educating people about how they can individually lower their chance of getting the virus may be what's causing almost all of the reduction we're seeing. And if you look at his post, you know, it's kind of convincing, um, especially just given the point that the the virus is behaving the same all across the world regardless of the government policy i i will say that like if colorado went back to the situation we were in in march we'd still be sitting really pretty because we were in a great situation in march and a lot of people would probably say you know the lockdown in april helped us to never end up like new york and that may be true uh but i do think like new york and other really dense places are probably going to be just voluntarily locked down and socially isolated much more than less dense places. And I think that's probably okay. Like, I don't see why anyone in a small town in rural America would need to be locked down at all for the most part. Yeah. And, uh, Tyler Cowen had an excellent piece at marginal revolution titled, did we lock down some parts of America too early? Uh, and his, proposition is basically that um when you have this sort of lockdown there's basically a constant amount of time that you can actually sustain it for um where people will actually comply with it in any serious way and by insisting that we should only have this one homogenous um policy even at a state level where like people in rural upstate New York are under the same policy as people in New York City and people in um, 
like Chicago uh, have the same policy as people in rural Illinois. Uh, basically, because the virus is getting to those rural areas a lot later, uh, the the states who had those big cities basically spent all of their political capital too early by insisting that they should lock down at the same time as the big cities, when in fact it, that limited quarantine time would have been better spent uh, much later in those rural areas. And I think this is why you get those protests in the less densely populated places, because they, you know, they get the impression they don't need this kind of stuff, whereas people in New York City are going to be self-quarantining much longer and not really uh, protesting at all because they need it. I, I don't yeah. think it's, I don't know, I don't yeah. think it's collective suicide because the people who are at risk are taking those extra precautions. Especially in like, for lack of a better word, Trump country, where people are already pretty skeptical of well-educated elites. And they hear, oh, we need to do these lockdowns right now because otherwise the hospitals will be overwhelmed. And they're seeing the hospitals in their communities shutting down because they don't have any patients coming in. Like, I, honestly, if I wasn't as much of a news junkie and, uh, frankly, as well-educated about how things like exponential progressions work as I was, I'd probably be really sympathetic to the, um, to the protesters in these situations. Yeah. And my, my feelings are, I just, I have no idea if the virus is going to, if we're going to have a second wave, if we're going to be back in the position we are in March. I do know though, that what we're doing now is unsustainable. And what we needed to do was used this time to build up our testing capacity. And it seems like we didn't really do that Fuck very the dog much. on that one. Yeah, so uh, if we, we're going to have to open up, so hopefully, you know, John Cochran's right. But you know, I, I, I don't really know enough to have a good prediction. Yeah. I will say, I have been pretty frustrated through this whole thing about how uh, epidemiologists have refused to listen to economists. Because, like, we've figured Naturally. out quite a lot about how uh, public policy works and how electorates respond to different policies. And as far as I know, the epidemiologists have paid exactly zero attention to any of that. And, like, they've just been straightforwardly... Um, advocating whatever they think is the best public health policy without sparing a moment's thought to like what's actually what it's actually gonna look like after the political process chews it up and spits it out never mind whether actual human beings will comply with those instructions so yeah all that is to say that Economics is the only real social science, and all others <laughs> should be purged. And apparently epidemiology is a social science. All right, better get with the purging. Yeah, I would, quickly before we move on, put my personal confidence interval at a 
decent bit higher than 90% that oh, we will so see. now you're willing to give an exact number. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, in this particular case, because I think well more than 90% likely that we will see a surge in cases that, you know, things will go on the rise again. But um, I don't think it's going to be like a flood or a collective suicide, as he calls it. It's just going to be, you know, the lockdown comes off. There is going to be an increase in cases. I just don't think it's going to be, um, you know, overwhelming. And in if it does get to be overwhelming in a few places, they will lock down again. And there won't be um, social strife over a lockdown when people are seeing that their community is getting hit hard by something. All right. Eniyash, you yes. had a story for us about governors being worried that the feds are going to seize their supplies. Yeah, uh, this is in, it just a... God, a shining example of how dysfunctional this government is. Uh, In this particular case is the the governor of Maryland who um, flew in testing supplies and PPE uh, like to an airport that is rarely used uh, without uh, taking it off the official... It was secretive, I guess. I I don't want to say like any official rosters it was taken off of because I don't know that for sure. Uh, But um, this was under the guard of the uh, Maryland uh, National Guard and Maryland State Police specifically. And uh, they were asked, like, why? Why are you being so secretive and so super um, protective of this stuff? And he said, here we go. Three million masks have been earlier seized by an unspecified federal agency back in March, which was why they were doing this. And the uh, governor said that he was worried that these would be seized by the the federal government and would be used by politic, uh, specifically by Trump in his uh, way of the states that he favors, the you know red states mostly, getting a lot of these materials and the states that don't support him or that put, you know, that give him guff in his opinion not getting supplies like he uses these resources as bargaining chips and so the states are literally trying to defend their supplies against the federal government which is completely fucked in my opinion like when we have states plotting against the federal government not plotting against but defending themselves against what they see as the predation of the federal government so they can use scarce resources for political games, we have a very bad government on our hands. Yeah, it's bad enough that we haven't gotten any real national leadership here, or uh, really anyone making a serious effort in the federal government to be helpful to the states trying to combat this, but at the point where they're actively interfering is just a new low. Yeah, uh, so in, in the in the interests of doing what not without incident said we should and trying to be super rationalist about this i do have to say as far as i can tell this hasn't actually happened it's just the governor of maryland was worried that it might happen Um, uh well according to the article i saw it did happen a purchase of three million masks were confiscated by a federal agency at the port of new york in march huh okay well uh comment withdrawn uh (laughs) Here we I, go. I to, for more details, he purge? relied on a private. Yes, yeah, purge. purge. <laughs> he um, relied on a private jet owned by the Patriots to transport additional masks that he bought, and they are kept in an undicl- undisclosed location uh, under state police and state national guard. 
Yeah. And uh, two yeah. weeks later, Illinois governor also arranged for two charter flights to transport PPE, intentionally keeping the details secret from the Trump administration to avoid confiscation. Yeah, all right, Patriots, cool out lending your jet and all, but you're still getting purged. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a uh, surreal experience earlier today. I was listening to the back catalog of Conversations with Tyler, uh, the episode from March 25th uh, with Ross Duffett on Decadence and Dynamism. Uh, Ross is a uh, socially conservative Catholic commentator, and uh, one of the questions Tyler asked him was, Given his um, belief that abortion is murder, why didn't he outright support President Trump? And uh, uh, conversations with Tyler are recorded about a month in advance, so this actual conversation was happening in uh, mid to late February, just before things really broke bad. Uh, And his answer was, I think the gap between President Trump's capabilities and the situations he's going to face is going to continue to widen and who Mm. knows maybe this whole coronavirus thing will be what finally does it and Mm. boy so for one thing that belonged to a conversation and a mindset that uh like i said probably mid to late february so around two thousand years ago um but also yeah called that one ross yeah i uh i tend to not like ross doubt it very much but uh he got this one shocking right. <laughs> uh he is one of the people i read though hmm. in order you know to keep it keep out of my uh, ideological bubble ideological bubbles are underrated all right and that takes <sighs> us to happy news Huzzah. the happy news i wanted to share is that the supreme court has take granted certification on a test challenging qualified immunity for police officers. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine that says that police officers and some other uh, officials exercising the police power of the states have a special kind of immunity from uh, prosecution and from legal suit. To make it simpler, this is this is what let's police officers murder people and break the law without facing very many consequences. Yeah. What it says is they, unless there is a clear established right that they are violating that everyone knows about, they can't be held liable for it. And what happens is they never actually go establish these rights because they dismiss the cases and they say, well, we haven't had a case with these exact facts before. Um, so, you know, a reasonable officer wouldn't have known that this specific thing was uh, a violation of someone's rights, even though it is a violation of their rights and nobody is arguing that it isn't. Um, and it's just a very circular thing that happens. It's an awful doctrine and it's not anywhere in the Constitution. This is just a thing that was made up. Um, Can I give one specific example, which is one of the ones that are in this? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, in Jessup versus City of Frisco, the Ninth Circuit granted immunity to police officers who stole over $225,000 in cash and rare coins from a citizen in the course of executing a search warrant. Since it was while they were executing a search warrant, they got to keep everything they stole. 
I believe they use the Dave Chappelle defense of, uh, sorry, I uh, didn't know I couldn't do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think I think I've plugged the um, the podcast short circuit by the Institute for Justice. Uh, which is a libertarian um, legal firm, uh, public interest legal firm. Um, they do a podcast, a weekly podcast called Short Circuit, uh, basically recapping some significant circuit court decisions uh, that have happened because uh, people who aren't judges don't really pay attention to circuit courts, even though that's where a lot of the sausage gets made. Uh, and they have talked a lot about this case because they are actually the litigators in it. Uh, oh. So definitely check out Short Circuit and uh, the Institute for Justice more generally. I believe they are actually one of the uh, featured charities for um, not Give Well, but the spinoff to Give Well that's more focused on long-term projects. Um, yeah, one of their interest areas is criminal justice reform in the United States, for which they uh, are giving money to uh, IJ. One other thing about this. So the concept of qualified immunity is also one of my favorite things to talk about as a libertarian, because it just shows you how, when you actually get into the muck of politics, really, really good ideas go just horribly wrong. Because on paper, the doctrine of qualified immunity is to do things like if your house is burning down and a firefighter pulls you from the flaming building hard enough to uh, hurt your arm in some way, then you should not be allowed to sue the firefighter because we want firefighters' top priority to be fighting fires. This, on paper, seems like a perfectly good and reasonable idea. And then, after it actually gets chewed up and spit out by real-life legislation, you get things like police stealing several hundred thousand dollars and then getting away with it scot-free. So, that's, a, that's all to say. If you want to convince me not to be libertarian, the tack you need to take is not, this is something that the government could in theory do that would be kind of good, because I have no faith, because of things like qualified immunity, that anything good in that theoretical construct will actually be preserved in the real-life legislation. It'll just be used for things like letting police get away with stealing bunches of money and murdering brown people and that sort of thing. Yeah, I just wanted to, to also... I mean, that was one of the ones I grabbed because it was so outrageous but i mean a lot of these are are literally shootings of people there is one officer that was granted granted qualified immunity for shooting a 10 year old child lying on the ground while repeatedly attempting to shoot a pet dog that wasn't posing any threat uh there's one where they shot another person seven times and just for ridiculous reasons but you know they're cops so Obviously, they, they need to be able to shoot people whenever they want. Yeah. I, I used to work for a firm that defended uh, police officers for the city of Camden. And the first section in every legal brief on every motion for summary judgment was qualified immunity. Uh, and it was just saying, look, even if uh, 
you know, what they're saying is true. Even if they did all this, they're immune from prosecution and immune from liability because, you know, they're police officers and we let them get away with this sort of thing. And I can tell you firsthand that, that it's just a bullshit doctrine. There's no there's no reason why police officers can't be held to the same standard of care as a normal person. Yeah. And so the reason this is under happy news, despite how outrageous this is, is because the Supreme Court is going to be reevaluating whether this should be a thing. Yeah. And it's it's looking like they may be either getting rid of it or severely curtailing it. Yeah. And I, I do have to say, uh, if you've just been following like the news, then you might be under the impression that there's no way this will get overturned because two justices were Trump appointees. But uh, Gorsuch especially has a really, really good uh, track record on civil liberties. So I'm actually pretty um, uh, pretty optimistic about this. All right. And our other good news this week is on coronavirus testing. We have a pair of stories. Uh, Inyash, why don't you tell us about these stories? The first one is that uh, earlier we were talking in our earlier episodes about how we aren't sure people might be getting reinfected, which is incredibly bizarre because that is different from just about every sickness ever, that if you recover, you have antibodies for it, but eh, things are looking weird about this one. Uh, so maybe that's not the case here. Yeah, it turns out that those were false positives, not reinfections. Yay, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, uh, it should be the case that unless there is a mutation that is, you know, different enough from the original one that it'll surpass, uh, circumvent your immune response, that once you have this coronavirus, you will not get it again. Yeah, and uh, now that my, in the interest of telling people when I've updated on evidence, now that this fear has been assuaged, I am 100% on board with uh, Robin Hansen's uh, virulation proposals. Is that the one where he says we should be uh, allowed to get uh, infected in a controlled environment? Yep, that's yeah. the one. All right. And the second one is that uh, this was posted by someone under, hey, look what happens when the FDA gets out of the way. Uh, a whole bunch of tests were introduced to the market, not all of them as good as, uh, you know, one would hope, but an independent, independent what, organization out there went through, did a whole bunch of testing, and the best test so far has 99% accuracy. So in the course of, what, less than two months, we managed to get a whole bunch of tests out there, uh, have them independently verified, and we have one with 99% goodness. Yeah. Do you know uh, the 99% accurate one? Is that uh, with... Um, is that under, like, laboratory conditions for administration? Because a lot of the... Like, the tests we were working with before... There was one that, if administered correctly, was extremely accurate, but it's it's the one where you need to stick the swab way far up your nose, and it was really, really hard to administer accurately. So in real life, the uh, accuracy rate was actually lower than the spit test, um, just because the spit test is almost impossible to mess up. Uh, I don't know. Although I do need to quickly say it's 99% uh, accuracy to not deliver false positives. The uh, finding antibodies one was still uh, only about 90%, so more work to do. Hmm. But yeah, I'm not sure if it was laboratory conditions or what conditions exactly. Well, that's, uh, that is good news regardless, but still that's an important thing to check. Whenever you hear uh, 
that sort of news. So there's a lesson you can take home with you, kids. <laughs> All right. And uh, that takes us to troop deployments. And Eniash, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, this is a troop deployment because I, I feel that troop, troop deployments is the place where we put things that we have hunches on but not a lot of evidence for. Uh, so this is just anecdotal ex- data from what I've heard uh, from, I don't know, other podcasts and international people that I talk to uh, online. But it feels very much like before roughly the current era, uh, since since about the end of the Cold War to now, the U.S. has been in a sort of leadership position. We played the part of the world police. A lot of countries stopped investing much in military because we were, you know, doing that thing. And we really took the lead on a lot of global initiatives um, because we had the resources and the drive to do that. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Uh, A lot of people have been saying, like, the U.S. obviously doesn't really care to be involved with these global issues that much anymore. We're stepping back on global warming. We're stepping back on this coronavirus thing. There's a lot that we're really just stepping back on. And it seems that we are losing our economic dominance. There's a lot of countries that are getting close to, um, not close to us in productivity yet, but they're they're coming out from the background now. They're growing. Uh, I know that they're China specifically and some other countries have a bit less regulatory burden on their research. So even though we still have the best scientific establishment, there are more uh, research coming from other sources now that could rival us in the next decade or two. And it just seems like in general, we are passing the global leadership torch. And it seems that everyone's more or less okay with that. Like all the other countries are like, yeah, it's uh, it's about time. We, we didn't need the U.S. forever, and I'm also of the opinion that, like, you know, I'm generally against hegemony, and while I think the whole Pax Americana thing seems to have been pretty good, and I'd rather not have situations where there's threats of world wars, um, I don't know if it was worth all the other costs that we had to bear to enforce hegemony. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that we are passing the global leadership torch, and that's not a bad thing. All right, David. Uh, so I'm going to do something slightly unorthodox and deploy two troops, uh, because one is short and actually what troop deployment is supposed to be for, and the other is a bit longer and uh, more like the random what's on David's mind that isn't related to news or politics that I have mostly been doing. Uh, so the short one is I want to do a quick victory lap. Uh, I said uh, when I was a guest on the Bayesian Conspiracy talking about UBI that I wasn't a huge fan of UBI because uh, the government is incapable of doing anything quickly or efficiently, and then the government spent $3 trillion in about a fortnight, and no one really noticed, and a bunch of people haven't even gotten their money yet. And uh, even the people who did get their money were disappointed in how little money there was compared to just, like, working a normal job. And so I wanted to take a quick victory lap there, because even though a actual full-blown program would probably be somewhat less uh, inefficient than a frantic thrown-together stopgap, 
uh, it still does not give me any confidence that um, it would be efficient in any sort of wider sense than that. Uh, then for my real troop deployment, I have been listening to a lot of music from The Who, uh, spelled H-U. Uh, they are a Mongolian folk metal band who uh, basically combine uh, Western metal uh, with Mongolian instrumentation and throat singing. And it is one of the most interesting sonic experiences I think I've ever had in my life. Uh, and it actually led me to a sort of revelation uh, in their song uh, Shug Shug, um, which I assume we'll also link to. Uh, they start out with a vocal and bass introduction, uh, plus some drums, which I think is a kit of both Western and Mongolian drums, by the sound of it. Uh, and they have this really great bass line that just seamlessly, seamlessly transitions into, um, uh, traditional Mongolian instrumentation. And it, it made me realize that folk metal is probably like the ideal way of consuming world music because uh those that that western instrumentation and the uh to some extent western composition sort of gives your auditory centers of your brain kind of a rosetta stone to translate the um the very non-western elements of the music into something more comprehensible to your monkey brain and uh, um yeah that's pretty much all i wanted to say uh you should just listen to the who and also if you have any recommendations for folk metal from other countries i would be very very interested in hearing about them all right and my soldier that i'm deploying this week is about drive-in movies i think we should bring them back uh, my wife and I, you know, used to, before all this happened, uh, used to go out on Friday nights and see movies uh, every week or every other week. It was a nice thing we liked to do, and we can't really do that anymore. And I think there's a lot of demand to be able to do that in a socially distant way, and drive-ins are perfect for that. Um, there's a lot of empty fields around, uh, which is really all you need. You can set up a uh, FM transmitter to transmit the audio, which is how they do it now. They don't, they don't rely on speakers anymore, so you just need a big movie screen and a transmitter. So I hope to see some of those getting created and taking off, um, and I would certainly patronize them. Here, here. Also, I want to say uh, drive-in movies. So traditional movies in theaters, absolutely terrible dates. Uh, drive-in movies are much better, though, because you can actually talk to your date and cuddle in a way that you really can't in a traditional theater. Also oh, a good, good point. point. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. Reminder to people listening on the Bayesian Conspiracy feed, this is our last show on that feed. So if you want to keep listening, you'll have to subscribe on one of our dedicated feeds, which are all linked in the show notes. So please do that. 
Um, you can leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and uh, any, pretty much anywhere else that hosts podcasts. Including now Stitcher. Uh, as of when this goes live, we should be available on Stitcher as well. Yay! Uh, all right, and we will be back in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel.